welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. My name is Kelly Deutsch, and today I am joined by Kathy Henderson Stout. And I feel like the timing couldn't be better. We're in the middle of the Women Mystic School, offering masterclasses on everything contemplative, feminine, embodied, mystical. But we're also gearing up for our next series on Celtic spirituality, which is a rich path to a lot of similar themes ritual and rhythm, thin spaces, their sense of wanderlust, and that vision of the world where every season and song and sparrow is sacred. And Kathy shares a lot in common with both of these streams. Mm -hmm. She's a poet, retreat leader, teacher, and spiritual director in the Washington, D.C. area. In her writing and her scholarship, she's most interested in how we embrace and experience our lives as creatures with bodies, seeking to be in whole and loving relationships with one another and with the mystery at the heart of our lives and of the cosmos. Her poetry is a spiritual practice, enabling her to dwell deeply in the richness and challenges of life, loss, relationships, and transitions. So right up our alley here at Spiritual Wanderlust, where we love talking about wholeness and liminal spaces and spiritual practice. So I've been looking forward to our conversation today. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you, Kelly. Absolutely. To start us off today, I'd love to hear a bit about your background. And you can answer this in whatever way you want, but what roads led you to where you are today as poet, spiritual director, teacher, and all of the many and varied things you do? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I would have expected my to wind up as a poet and spiritual teacher when I started out. Um, I was very much, um, you know, the smartest girl in the class, very academic, very drawn to uh, the life of the mind. Hmm. I was raised in a, a, a family. I was really fortunate in this. I was raised in a um, kind of liberal Protestant Presbyterian family. Um, actually, it's, it, and we we talked about theology at the dinner table, but in a kind of open-minded way, because hmm. my parents were from different theological backgrounds, and they were kind of learning themselves. Uh, one, one thing you can see that's true about our family is we are, uh, my sisters and I ended up in three different denominations, hmm. but all still very much practicing um, some kind of uh, spiritual path. And I think I had a very lively inner life from a very early age, but no language or model to know what this was. And uh, so I think it's one of the things I think I have in common with Evelyn Underhill, I think my scholarly work was partly trying to figure that out. You know, where mm. is there some language that's not theological language that talks about this? So I got very interested in the romantic poets, um, mm. 
my undergraduate thesis, when I look back at it now, you know, when you ask what's the path you've been on, my undergraduate thesis was on the image of the veil, V-E-I-L, mm -hmm. in romantic poetry, the thing that both hides and reveals mm -hmm. in, three, in two different poets, um, uh, Shelley and and um, the French poet Arthur Rimbaud, and then my, then I went on and did a PhD in comparative literature again because that exposed me to a bunch of different cultures and different languages. I had I have a couple of foreign languages that I that I speak and read pretty fluently, and you know the the idea that there's something real here that transcends language. Mm. I think has always been something I've believed but it's also you also kind of need language to anchor it and I'm mm -hmm. a word person I mean I so um so my graduate thesis was called the problem of transcendence mm -hmm. and I looked at an atheist poet Percy romantic Percy Bysshe Shelley and a French symbolist Stéphane Mallarmé who talked about uh words as things in a work of art. And then I discovered in graduate school this uh, Anglo-Welsh poet named David Jones, hmm. who talks about art and poetry as sacramental activities. And he hmm. was both a visual artist and a, to me, absolutely fascinating modernist poet. And his poetry is very difficult, but I read he has a long poem where the central image is the celebration of Eucharist in the middle of World War II. And I, uh, and there's a lot more to it, but I, I, I was drawn into that poem the first time I read it. It's called The Anathemata uh, by David Jones and wound up writing a chapter on Jones in my doctoral dissertation. And then eventually, uh, but there's a whole story between then and then, um, a book on David Jones. So he's been, and he continues to be kind of my scholarly and artistic companion, but also his, I mean, he was a World War I veteran who was horribly traumatized by the war um, and a Catholic convert, like many in the twenties who became Catholics in, in the aftermath of the war, um, who just found in the kind of long Western spiritual tradition, especially Celtic spirituality, um, that something real mm. uh, that he, for him, was very much expressed in the, the liturgies of the church. Mm. And at the time I discovered him, I was also discovering the uh, Episcopal Church's expression of Christianity, which inc includes a lot more sacramental practice than what I was raised with, and I loved it. Mm. And so that's why I became an Episcopalian. My, my Presbyterian sister says it was my adolescent rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, uh, and and so it was. It's been in the Episcopal Church starting from. I was confirmed in the Episcopal Church my senior year in college. Mm. I never, I never really wandered very far from a Christian expression of some kind. But mm. there was just, just a lot that was new to me. I didn't know anything about the mystics, and um, and then of course life, life adventures happened. Right. Um, I think the next real turning in my path, I, you know, kind of started out with plan A, got a couple of academic jobs, um, followed my husband to through medical school and uh, postdoc. And while he was in you know, doing his postdoc, I had an NEH grant to work on the David Jones book. It was all kind of going along swimmingly. Um, and then I had this experience 
just about when it looked like we we had we were out in a different city when he was um doing his postdoc and I was on leave from my my teaching job at, in 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 Philadelphia and just as we were about to go back to plan A I just had this epiphany I remember vividly my my little three-year-old, two and a half year old was sitting in his high chair messing with his Cheerios. And my husband had gone for an interview for the job that would allow us to be both in the same city and doing what we planned to do. And he called me and the phone rang. And this is, I call this my enunciation story. The phone rang. It was my husband saying, it's on, we can do it. And I suddenly realized I didn't want to go back to an academic teaching job. Hmm. Um, that I, the work, I, I still wanted to write my book. I still, but, but the work of the, the life of motherhood has turned out to feel more like a vocation than I mm. had realized. Mm. Um, and I wasn't gonna, I couldn't see how it all was going to go together. And, and it just felt, it was one of those moments. It was just, it's not always like that for me with discernment, but it was just clear. And so everything else has sort of followed from that. Mm. Um, and um, so um, so we had another child and moved to Washington, D.C. area following my husband's career, found a church after much searching. Um, and really just about after we found that church, and it was you know a place where I felt welcome and our kids felt welcome, I was diagnosed with uh, very early stage breast cancer. Mm. And I was in my late thirties with two kids under five. And as it's turned, it turned out fine. As you can see, I'm still here over 30 years later, but it shook me to the core. It was just a discovery that anything can happen anytime. Mm. And I didn't know for a while how serious it was going to turn out to be. And and navigating everyone else's reactions to that, realizing how many lives kind of depended on mine. Um, I was very blessed in having a very supportive community of other moms in the neighborhood and of friends at church, and particularly a pastor who kind of saw where I was. And I remember telling him when I told him it was like you were supposed to keep it a secret, this breast cancer diagnosis. I don't know. It's sort of a way I think we 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 maintain control when there's mm -hmm. bad health news. You sort of decide who you're going to tell, and because mm -hmm. you partly because you just don't want to deal with everybody else's reaction, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I um so I remember a conversation with with my priest, who was a guy about my age with kids about my age, so probably shook him up too. And I said, you know, I I feel like I've been on a really good spiritual path, you know, I've been, I've been on a plateau and I, um, I'm not sure I'm ready for a valley. And he said, I think it's called the valley of the shadow of death. So kind of working out for, I, I kind of went through the whole experience. I got a mastectomy. I had, you know, dealing with that loss, all kinds of things to deal with. And really didn't face the fact that I was still kind of shook up by all of this after everybody else had moved on because, mm. you know, margins were good. I didn't have any, didn't have to do any further treatment. It was all good. I was cured. You know, oh, it's over. Only then did I start work processing what had happened mm. for me. And what really helped me was the liturgies of Holy Week, the way mm. of the cross, just going through the next, the next cycle 
that story of Christ, I kind of thought about Maundy Thursday, and I remembered my neighborhood friends giving me giving me a party right before I went into the hospital. And I thought about Good Friday and the the kind of the loneliness of the hospital room and, and kind of walked through the whole thing to Easter. Mm-hmm. And that that really was a turning. And in the course of that, had a number of um began to have a number of really vivid experiences of the love of God for me, Mm. the presence of God in my life. Mm. Uh, And to write them down in my journal, I started keeping a journal regularly and something started coming out that I realized was poetry. Mm. Now you have to understand, I was trained as an academic reading poetry. So the, to let myself write poetry, mm, different you know, myself. to spend <laughs> that, that critical thing was, was, was a big step. Hmm. Um, so for a long time, it was very private, very much just something between me and God. And maybe I would share it. I have a few friends who would listen, especially when we went to the beach in the summer, my friends at the beach beach house would listen to what I was writing as I was walking along the waves. But mm-hmm. it took a while to really own um, the poetry I was writing. And meanwhile, I was kind of carving out um, uh, a vocational path that involved more uh, retreat work. Uh, I've, I've had a friend who taught at a seminary and they let me teach a course on religion and on literature and theology. And so I found myself teaching at seminaries, learning from my seminary colleagues, kind of getting excited about theological things again and trying to put all of that together. And I also, I guess the other thing that happened was I finished the J- David Jones book right before I went for my surgery. That was very clear to me that I had to finish that manuscript and get it off. And um, the the published, you know, the box with the published copies of it arrived uh, on my doorstep on Good Friday. Interesting. Which was very cool. Yeah. So many years later, I mean, 10 years after I'd started the book. Um, so, um, so that that intertwining of the life of the mind and the life of the spirit, I think gradually finding the courage to write poetry uh, developed alongside owning the life of prayer, finding that people were coming to me for spiritual advice and maybe hmm. I needed to get some training about how to offer that. And I would say now my primary vocation is as a spiritual director hmm. and spiritual companion and uh, retreat leader, but that the poetry and the spiritual guidance come from the same place. Yeah, I was going to say that's, that's such a rich intersection point. And that way of viewing the world, kind of that sacramental imagination where everything means something is I think that's, you know, if there was a Venn diagram between poets and contemplatives, that's that's one of the right. key that's things that's the, that's yes, shared absolutely. in common. And so, I mean, I was thinking earlier how, you know, most kids don't get into poetry at a young age. Like it's not super common, but the the poetic mind and imagination, that way of, you know, I, I just think of the times when I would get home, you know, I was like eight and we'd get off the bus and the I lived in the South Dakota countryside and I just like lie in the grass and soak up the clouds. I don't really think about anything in particular, you know, and, 
that I think is that predisposition that a lot of us have to that poetic or contemplative way of life of recognizing the depths that are there without yet knowing how to put it into words. Yeah, I think I was probably eight or 10 when I wrote home from um, from Girl Scout camp about a moment when there was this bright purple flower in the meadow and it just blew me away. And I remember mm. my dad writing back and saying, thank you for sharing that with us. And it was, you know, clear to me that he got mm. that this was something important about me. Mm -hmm. um, and later, of course, I read Alice Walker, who said, if, if I think it pisses God off if we walk by the color purple in the field and don't notice. So I think that's, you know, that can, you're right. There are many of us who have that contemplative disposition and, but we're not really encouraged to develop it. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Hmm. Well, you know, it's fantasy. You're supposed to be learning the difference between reality mm. and, you know, fantasy, of course, Underhill talks about mysticism as the art of union with reality. So that doesn't quite really quite fly, does it? But, mm. um, but yeah, I think certainly in my case that, you know, it was about, you know, finding, finding a, understandable purpose in life and succeeding in school and succeeding at the mm. thing, the tasks that were put before us. So I don't know that that's everybody's experience. I think some, you know, some kids are encouraged to follow their, um, their artistic bent. Um, but the other thing is, you know, sort of um, sometimes there's kind of a culturally a culture of you have to be good at some, you know, the best mm. at something if you do it at all. And the contemplative experience doesn't really it's not something you can be good at, you know, it's just someone you are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I think that whole idea of, um, you know, we're expected to be like productive and in a very certain kind of way, you know, yeah. maybe more the capitalistic Western right. mindset versus that, yeah, that kind of fantasy. I almost think of it as looking at the world with like a wink, <laughs> you know, there's like this sense of mischief and you, you read that in a lot of kind of the Celtic tradition. I love that about them that they, there was just so much um, vivacity around them. You know, I mean, that's something that Hildegard would talk about the veriditas, the greenness, you know, and, right. well, and that veriditas is actually the working title of my forthcoming book of poems. Mm, I love it. Um, so that, yes, exactly. That green life that pulses through everything that, um, the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas calls it the, the for the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I think, and, Perhaps more and more as we're paying more attention to the earth, mm. this is something that we'll, we will recapture. And it's something the Celtic tradition had, did not lose. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious how, how you would recommend, like, how do we recapture that when we get so, I mean, whether people listening are, you know, busy with like three kids and jobs and running errands, or they're retired and have just, you know, lived a certain way and are just kind of used to their path how do we help um, encourage that kind of sacramental imagination, the mm -hmm. the Celtic vision, the, the poetic vision that sees life and notices the purple in the field? And I, I loved your, your poem on the 17-year cicadas. And yes. Yes. like you called it their treetop wedding song and they harmonize and whistle, wow, 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 wow. <laughs> you know, and I loved that because 
How often do we just like go to bed and like, oh my gosh, the cicadas, could they just shut up so I can sleep, you know? Right. Like, well, and when these, you know, when this brood 10 comes back, it's the, the, all the news media is all about how annoying it is, you know? And so that was kind of a countercultural poem because I was loving it. Um, so uh, I think that to answer your, your thought, I, I think the, the word noticing, hmm is really important. Annie Dillard says, we're here to notice. Mm. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Or maybe it's Lucille. It's poets say that. They all say it. Notice, pay attention. But you can do it, you know, when you're walking by. You can do it. Um, I, there's a way of nature journaling I ran across uh, where you just write in your journal, um, I notice, um, I see, I notice, I wonder. Hmm. That may not be what I learned, but that's how I do it. I see, you know, so what, what do I see? What am I noticing about what I see? What do I wonder? Mm. And that gives kind of space. Um, but I do, I think things, I think when I used to be in the midst of the crazy, the crazy of raising kids, when I used to turn off the radio when I drove through Rock Creek Park, mm. just so I would, I still do that. I, when I'm driving to Virginia, I turn off the radio on George Washington Parkway where the trees are beautiful, you know, just um, to let it kind of flow over me. I think walking outdoors also is just the thing to do if you can if, and, and to have something green around you, even if you're mm -hmm. in an urban setting. Um, all of those things. Um, and to read poets, you know, read poetry. Mary Oliver, everybody, a lot of people are reading Mary Oliver now because she's so tuned in to this, this quality of, of um, the, the life around us. But I think a lot of, a lot of contemporary poets are, are, that's where we get our energy, really. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it makes me think of the practice of, of taking a Sabbath, whether it's like a media Sabbath, or, you know, like whatever kind of Mm -hmm. just moment of pause and stillness. And it might be 10 minutes throughout your day where you just allow yourself to sit on the couch and look out the window, you know, what? or yeah. it's, it's and, almost and like it really, what we do when we daydream, <laughs> you know, it just really doesn't have to be more than five or 10 minutes. You know, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, it's practicing the presence, right? It's just, mm -hmm. it's letting, letting, letting what's, what's real, get get back in in the mm. middle of crazy and of course with with kids you know taking the kids to the park and you know kids help with this actually mm. if, if you can see it from their point of view um and and that it, it can be a wonderful time of life but the way that parenthood is structured at least in my own social location is it's it's very busy busy mm-hmm mm-hmm Talk to me a little bit about poetry as a spiritual practice. I mean, what does that look like for you? Is it all of these things, you know, like it just depends on the day or is a certain um, more formal kind of practice? What does that look like? So I think it's got two, for me, it has two levels. One is I, I do write in a journal almost every day, mm. even if it's just my daily to-do list. And usually part of my journaling is some kind of practice of paying attention to where I am. Hmm. Um, and I never, I rarely say, okay, I'm going to write a poem now, but what happens is that that practice of attention will sometimes just stir and make mm. me feel like, 
there's something here to pay attention to. And sometimes it just comes out as a poem. And I I do, I I write in my journal in cursive, which means that nobody but me can read it. In fact, I can't even read it myself most of the time. But when when something that looks like a poem comes out, I, I print. Mm. So when I go back through my journal, I can see those places where something kind of bubbled mm. up. The other thing I sometimes do is um, if I, it feels like a poem, I will think I'll say, okay, let's let me just try putting this into a form. Can I write a 14 line unrhymed sonnet that's in iambic pentameter? So just those that kind of structure puts pressure on the words so mm -hmm. that it, it kind of distills what's important. Or a tanko, which is uh, kind of an expanded haiku. Uh, structure hmm. where you write it's you it's uh, five lines of uh, alternating five and seven syllables and so that forces you to focus on the image on hmm. the on the core thing and then sometimes then I, i'll know it's good when it talks back to me but i tend to do i you know i was an academic for so long that i'm still pretty much on a on a program year schedule so september to june you know i'm I off, I'm doing my spiritual direction appointments and teaching and whatever. And then in the summer, even though I do still do some of that, um, I count on three months of Sabbath time. Mm. And during the summer, I will often uh, really spend time crafting. So I'll look back through my journals from the previous nine months and pull out some of these things that I've printed. And and then you then the crafting is, okay, so what's the music here mm. is there a form it wants to take uh, are there words that need to be taken out is there something else going on here and just kind of working it until until it talks back to me so i i often go through and just type up all of these passages in uh in my journals and most of them aren't keepers you know but but then reading through and seeing what what lands and what feels like a keeper yeah i love that because it's um it's so much like the contemplative life, you know, again, that Venn diagram overlaps so much yes. between the poetic world and that of the contemplative. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's almost like you're adopting a poetic stance, like this attentiveness. And in, in the contemplative life, I like to talk of it as like a receptivity, you know, like a Marian yeah. stance before reality. Absolutely. And then it sounds like actual poems are just the, the fruit of that. Like, Yes. It's, it's great if it happens, but it's not like you sit down, and you're like, I'm going to write a poem today. <laughs> you know, like Now I will say sometimes I've had a uh, Lenten discipline of writing a sonnet a day. Hmm. Sometimes just to get myself, if I haven't been writing in a while, I, I'll do that. And that's also a discipline of humility because of course, most of them are terrible. Sure. Sure. That's <laughs> but, a good but it does, it, it does concentrate the focus, you know, to just decide to do that. Mm. Do you have a favorite poem that you've written? Mm -hmm. um, well, I was. I can. I, I'm thinking of our of our theme. I can read you um, this poem, um, which is the last one in my my collection, "Good Places." I tend to write. I have my first, the middle, the not the first one, but the next two volumes are chapbooks, which mm -hmm. means that I also put quite a lot of thought into what poem goes next to what poem. And there's a mm. kind of arc, there's a kind of story arc if you read through all of the poems. So these were poems that I wrote during uh, the year, actually it was between the year that I was 59 and 60. 
and we changed, uh, we moved out, we moved house, we moved from one house to another. So it was leaving behind the, it was poems from the first house and then looking ahead to the new house and the new garden and the place we've been here for 10 years now. But, mm. um, but it also, you know, it uncovered a very prayerful kind of experience um, of, of the world. Mm. So the, the, the one I was going to read doesn't say, um, doesn't say too much about um about the nature part but i'm going to read it anyway because it's the one i i said i was going to read sure uh it's called reveling which is another word for the contemplative practice isn't it just to Absolutely. revel just to revel prayer teresa said will finally be a simple conversation between friends beyond the drama and the wilderness the dry places and the upwelling springs at last or intermittently we settle to daily conversation that is all and sometimes as today the conversation lapses nothing really now to say and even though the silence might appear to be an invitation into some dramatic mystic moment, it is not exactly that, rather a simple reveling, contentment without content, resting in the quiet being here that long love brings. Mm. And that's an example of a sonnet. That's 14 lines. Lovely. And it was a, so it was this experience that I didn't know how to put into words until I kind of tried the sonnet form. And it lands on, I love the line it lands on. I sometimes use it as a mantra that that pentameter line, the quiet being here that long mm. love brings. Does mm. says a lot of it. And that that line definitely felt given. Yeah, it the image that comes to mind with that the the quiet being here that long love brings it makes me think of um, just long term relationships and for some reason I'm thinking of like aging parents and visiting and sometimes like there isn't a whole lot to say <laughs> you right. know like right. there's just a quiet being here together like mm -hmm. you know you've you've covered probably the big things at some point in time and. You know, you may have talked about the little things like the weather or, you know, what you're having for dinner or something, you know, something simple, but it's, it's the being together that really counts. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting too, that this, this comes out of a time when I was spending that kind of time with my mother mm. and she was aging and the new book was written right after she died. Some of the poems in there are written right after she died. So it's been a way of, the, the poetry has been a way of tracking. The middle volume, Waving Back, was from the period when my kids were starting to, when I was sort of seeing that it wasn't going to be long before they were going to be leaving home. So it was mm. a kind of elegiac um, movement. So it's it has tracked kind of periods of my life. I think that's, that is the other thing that the poetry does. It's been mm. a way of, uh, it's been a kind of memoir, really. Mm, yeah, and I'm finding as I this new volume that will be coming out next year is uh, it will be a new and selected poem. So I've gone back and said, hmm, what's I'm, what am I going to keep that kind of tells the story? And there become there's kind of an arc 
now that tells my life story in a new way. So is that the Veriditas one? Veriditas, yes. Beautiful. Yes. Does it have a release date yet? Um, I have to get the manuscript to the publisher at the end of January. So I would guess next fall. And I will come back to you when it comes out. <laughs> Great. Oh, looking forward to it. Um, one question I wanted to ask you, um, you talk about um you talk about embodiment and our bodies, like being creatures yes. who kind of discover that we have bodies. You even have a poem about the first humans kind of discovering their their embodiment, yes. if you will. And I'm wondering what that journey of discovery has looked like for you. Like, how mm -hmm. would you describe your relationship with your body, especially starting as an academic who who I'm sure spent so much time in your mind, like many of us do? How did you become more embodied and what what did that look like? Oh, wow. You know, when you ask it that way, it it's so much, yeah, movement out of my head into my body. Mm -hmm. Some of it was, I mean, David, David Jones, as a subject, talks a lot about no body, no Christian no religion, you know, so, so theologically, I had a kind of understanding of that. I thought it was a neat idea. But it was really the experience of motherhood. Mm -hmm. So I will tell you a shaggy dog part of that enunciation story that I wasn't going to tell you, but that's, it's part of it. Um, so I think for me, you know, I was so much on track toward this academic career. I remember people telling me, finish the book before you have the baby. The university where I was teaching didn't even have maternity leave. You had to call it disability. I mean, it was like, <laughs> I mean, this was in the early eighties. So, yeah. you know, uh, and I so so when I got this grant to go work on my book, it was still an academic credential. You know, I was going to finish the book, but I could follow my husband out of town and have the first baby. Right. So and I think the first thing was just the just the experience of pregnancy mm. and of childbirth, which was pretty smooth for me the first time. Um but it it uses all of you. I mean, and I think I did have a I, and he and I, we had some difficulty after my son was born with his um, feeding. So there was all that angst. And I probably had more than a touch of postpartum depression. And we just mm -hmm. didn't have framework for that. So so my body was I was sort of amazed at what my body could do. I remember mm. right after giving birth, thinking and taking a shower and thinking, wow, you know? Um, and then of course, dealing with all the aftermath of childbirth, which isn't completely pleasant. Um, but then after that, uh, and, and then of course I was in, I had followed my husband to this new community. So it took me a while before I really had much in the way of my own community. So it was mm. that those first few years of my son's life were uh, were pretty solitary um, mm. until I, you know, I sort of found found some people, started a babysitting co-op. But you know, I was very aware of, and I was still trying to write this book. Mm. So um, you know, I so my intellectual life was going forward, and now there was this whole new thing, and I really, and it was something I'd always wanted, and it was great. But wow, and so then, and part of that enunciation experience when you know my when the phone rang and my husband was he he still he still says he was amazed at what my response to there was but it it set us all on a on a path that has been very fruitful um but after that 
one of the things that I realized was I didn't want to go back to academe and I wanted to have another baby. Mm. And so here's the shaggy dog and the spiritual part of the story. So I got pregnant almost immediately. And then I had an early miscarriage, mm. which happened on Good Friday. Oh. And we were not we were not involved with the church, even though we'd been quite We'd been quite active in a church back um, when back in, in our previous town, but that was a thing we hadn't done. We hadn't really we'd been to a, we'd been to church a little bit, but but I was I was very aware that it was Good Friday, mm-hmm. and it was so it was my body in tune with the whole story, and yeah. uh, in ways I wasn't even putting into words. I mean, it was just too painful and it was very early it was like probably six weeks but uh and again it was like everybody said okay well move on you know it'll be fine although you do find out about all your other friends who had miscarriages that at that time we weren't really talking about it much yeah um so um i then i realized when this baby wasn't going to happen and we were going to be in this new town for more years than I thought we were going to be because we didn't have to go back. Um, I realized I better get back to whatever my identity was. So I kind of threw myself into a bunch of academic Mm -hmm. um, opportunities and worked harder on the book and eventually got pregnant again as we were moving. And my daughter was born shortly after we moved to, um, to um, Washington but but that but by then that experience of kind of just giving myself to this process of having bearing and raising children mm. was an embodied thing and raising kids is an embodied thing i mean you and you and i i found i loved it you know mm. i loved i loved watching i have another poem about my daughter when she was little rolling in the sand you know just um just well, let me read that one to you because sure. it kind of gives you um, that embodied stuff from that time of life. It's called Reality at the Beach. Mm. Um, and I've got a bunch of poems about the beach in this one. Here it is. Just now there is nothing else in all the world except this warm and sifting sand flecked with orange crystal shell shards flowing from this child's blue shovel. Filling her yellow pail, she packs and smooths, digs and dumps. Now she dips her fist into the beach and spills a sand pile on her bent up knee, watches fascinated as the tingling sandfall flows down her ankles, burying her toes. Around her sounds the steady, solid bass beat of crashing surf against the jutting sandbars, the swimmers shouts, the seagulls cries, and through it all an offshore breeze blows her hair and cheeks. The child leaps up and rolls across the sand down to the edge of the sea and squealing leaps into my arms. And there is nothing else in all the world just now except those sandy arms that cling around my neck, this salty hair against my cheek, this scratchy wriggling body and her laughter mingling with the sand and the wind and the sea. Mm, I love it. I love the, there's such a sensuality in the imagery. Like you can feel it and smell it and taste it. 
Yeah, I'd actually, as I read it, I thought um, it's a it's a primer for somebody who's wondering when you're immersed in the mothering life or mm -hmm. how to how to get in touch with that embodiment. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, I I love I love that motherhood was such a path for that for you because I feel like that's such a feminine experience and one oh, of the yeah. reasons why that the feminine kind of archetype, if you will tends to be so embodied because it's like, our, as a woman, your body is very vocal, <laughs> you know, yes, like, right. no, there I, is I, a lot yeah. going on, you know, I mean, especially with, you know, pregnancy and childbirth and nursing and menstrual cycles and, you know, just all your yeah, body is your very body involved. Your, and, 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 and if you're trying to be on a traditionally male career path, at least in my generation, the pressure was really to pretend like all of that wasn't happening. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so, you know, that, um, and I say my generation, I mean, I graduated from college in the seventies when we thought we had this, but obviously it's still an issue. It's not that different from my daughter, for my daughter's generation. I think in some ways so there's more conversation certainly about menstruation and miscarriage. And I think the and and but and I hope that the way that I talk about motherhood from my experience doesn't get interpreted as the kind of traditional male idealizing, oh, it's going to be wonderful, you'll love it, you know, because the poems are from places in my experience. Mm, you know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and they're also some of them are poems about loss and leaving and those kinds of things. So because yeah. that's the other thing about child rearing that I realized is that every stage at every stage of a child's life there's grieving because they are now who they are and that's what you are embracing but they're not who they were yeah yeah and yet you're holding the memory of all of that and that's a gift to them also because you've known all of these stages of who they are and um i think it's what we lose when we lose our parents right they're the yes. ones who knew that all of that about us. Yes. Um, so, um, so I've been very mindful of that. And I mm -hmm. think, and then having this diagnosis when it, we were just, I was just getting the hang of this. And then it's like, wait a minute, am I not going to get to see this whole story through? So really every, for me, every um, milestone in my children's lives has been a gift. You know, I've, I've always been aware that, it could have been otherwise. So, yes, um, yes, there's nothing like So that. I think I'm probably more intensely able to rejoice in that perhaps than if I hadn't had that experience at that time in my life. That's a good point. Yeah, I, there's nothing like an experience of your mortality to wake you up to <laughs> just the, the preciousness of, of right. little moments. Well, and actually the other thing is when you asked how I got started as a poet, the first poems that I published were poems about the cancer experience. Mm -hmm. So that also, I think it's, it's a, it's another way in which it's prayer, you know, mm -hmm. that it helps you to kind of spiritually process the, the hard things in our embodied life. Yes. So, yes. One thing I wanted to ask you about, um, in the past, you were the president of the Evelyn Underhill Association. Is that correct? I am the new president. Oh, you the were the Evelyn new president. Okay. Yes. The, the, the founding president is Dana Green, whose oh, biography right. of Underhill I recommend to everybody. And it's sub, its title says it all. She's the artist, Evelyn Underhill, the artist of the infinite life. Mm. 
That sounds Art great. Like it's great. Everybody should read it. And Dana is uh, Dana is has is the um, president emerita now. And I've um, I I first um, encountered the Evelyn Underhill Association has been around now for what thirty years. I think they I think they were started in 1989, mm. um, and um, it, it's really just started as a small group of people in the D.C. area who were devotees of Underhill and friends of Dana's, um, and um, had we one of one of our founders was a lawyer who got us incorporated as a nonprofit. And the main thing that we do is we hold an annual quiet day in honor of Evelyn Underhill, used to be at the Washington National Cathedral. Now we use mm. a space that's right adjacent to the grounds of the cathedral. Um, and um, it's always on the Saturday near the day when the Episcopal Church honors her as a saint. Her, mm. fe her feast, she's in our calendar of saints and her feast day is June 15th. So, so that I, Saturday, yeah. Yeah, okay, so... I'm assuming, or at least what I've heard in the past is Evelyn is kind of the British pronunciation and a lot of us Americans say Evelyn, is that correct? Yeah, and it's fine. Either one yeah. works. Either okay. One works. And, so uh, yeah. yeah, tell us a little bit about Evelyn because I know there are so many people who have never heard of her, but yeah, I yeah. think she is just gene. Like I, I see her as like the Richard Rohr of her day of she making told, that is absolutely who she was accessible yeah. and she's, you know, making, yeah, just, okay. I'll let you talk. <laughs> Tell us so, a little about yes, Evelyn. Yeah. Um, she, so she, um, she was writing, um, she started, she, she started out as a really prolific writer of fiction and poetry. Um, and, and she was really interested just in the spiritual path. Remember this is the era before the, before the first world war, hmm. very interested in kind of the perennial philosophy and, um, just what, what the spiritual life was. She had some kind of early, conversion from agnosticism which we don't have any details about because she hardly ever wrote about her in her own interior life so and then she um she but she was curious this is where i have the feeling of finish she was curious something was going on within her and she just undertook pretty much on her own a study of the the, the christian mystical tradition and read in depth the christian mystics and wrote this home on this large book called mysticism and she wasn't um, trained primarily as an academic right i mean she no. was just like i'm just gonna do this on my she own had, this she, is a hundred years ago college level stuff was in botany um but she um no she was it was her own curiosity and her you know wow. she obviously was brilliant able to learn this stuff and she had um she enlisted people who knew the languages the mystics wrote in if she didn't know them i mean she had people helping her but she put together what is still kind of the starting textbook about mysticism, especially in the Christian tradition, it was published in 1911. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about academic publishing, you will know that it is miraculous to say that it has been continually in print ever since it appeared in 1911. Um, and it was, so that was before the war. Um, and after the and and she so it was after the war that she wrote this book in that was published in 1918, which I'll talk about um, when, well, uh, called Practical Mysticism, mm. a little book for normal people, which kind of distills a, 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 a basic contemplative 
practice for mm. what she calls the, the the skeptical practical man. It's all she uses all masculine language. She's very much an Edwardian, um, but she um, but she's she's living this very what must have been an incredibly intense uh, and ardent inner life mm. while living the life of a middle upper middle class Kensington hostess and wife of a barrister and wrote wrote writes wonderful letters her letters including her letters of direction are just a joy to read mm. um and um but after the war she um she she says that she fell apart spiritually she and she again we don't have any details but she sort of in the course of emergence she goes into spiritual direction with um Friedrich von Hugel who was a well-known catholic modernist student of mysticism um and uh it was only maybe two and a half years that she worked with him but he was a profound influence on her life and he helped her to really um find a place she kind of slid back into a back pew in an Anglican church and, you know, re-embraced the kind of social Anglicanism she was raised in after really considering becoming a Catholic. But she couldn't become a Catholic because of the, there was, had been a papal decree against modernism and she just, she couldn't That's stomach right. that. And her conventional British husband could not abide the thought of his wife being in conversation with a confessor. So it was, it was off the table, basically. Um, but that's also often how vocation works, right? The path that's close to us is also something that tells us about the path we're on. And von Hugel encouraged her into her own tradition. Mm -hmm. He also encouraged her to experience Christ in a way that she hadn't before. And she was always, I would say, um, she was always a what a spirit-centered person mm -hmm. in terms of if you think about, I think one of the things you see in Underhill is that people have different paths to the holy and the trinity gives us a couple of those different paths right some people start with god as parent some people have a really strong relationship with jesus and some people are really drawn by the spirit but there's a kind of integration of that that happens in the mature christian path um so then she begins and then she starts offering retreats and this was a huge step for her because even though she was widely published, she was a very shy person. So the mm. idea of speaking, it, she you know she could write letters to people, but the idea of giving public retreats was was a uh, she said it felt like she was stepping off a cliff. Um, but her retreats are, I think, my favorite things. If she would basically, she had terrible asthma, and mm. she actually died of asthma mm. uh, ultimately. Um, of complications from asthma, but um, she so but so she was always working around health issues. But she every year she would write a retreat and she would give it in a couple of different places and then publish it as a little book. Mm -hmm. So from the twenties and thirties, we have this whole series of beautiful retreats on different themes. Um, I think my favorite happens is one called the School of Charity, which is meditations on of all things the Nicene Creed absolutely brings to life the mystery of the incarnation mm. and all what we've been talking about, about embodied life. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, presents that as kind of the core of a sacramental Christian life. Um, and she's also all about living into 
our calling. So she talks, um, well, as you say, the Richard Rohr of her day, I mean, she gave a radio address in 1936, um, which has been published as a book called The Spiritual Life. Very accessible, you know, addressed to a whole public audience. Um, and she uses sort of three parts of the path. She says that the spiritual life involves adoration, followed by, so we start with just, ah, oh. <laughs> and then communion, growing into a relationship with God, and then cooperation <laughs> with God, carrying out in the world God's desire for the world. Mm, yes. This She's... lands her up finally being a pacifist, mm. which if you think about England in 1939, being a pacifist basically loses you all your public credibility. Mm. And so that I think was the way of the cross for her ultimately. I mean, she had certainly people who gathered around and agreed with her. She was also very... Um, she was very committed to intercessory prayer in a way, although she said she wasn't good at praying for people, but she was very involved. She was involved in a kind of worldwide invisible prayer group called the Spiritual Entente that was started by a Franciscan in Italy, a woman named Sorella Maria. Um, she, Sorella Maria keeps turning up. She's, I wish, I don't know if anybody's done much work on her, but the, the spiritual entente were people who were praying for peace mm. all through the 20s and 30s in Europe all and 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 they had a they had an informal rule of life and actually one of the elements of that rule of life was that you had to be commit to being to participating in whatever your tradition was so mm. I think that was part of the impetus for her deciding to be an Anglican um mm -hmm. so but uh, so that that inner life that is that makes it that does something to the world. That's also Richard Rohr, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that's that sense that the contemplative heart is what is going to save us all. Yeah. And what leads to that kind of compassionate action um, right. in the world around us. Yeah, we have just a couple minutes left. Um, mm -hmm. I'm I'm so excited for your upcoming class on Evelyn um, in the Women Mystic School. For anybody who hasn't joined us yet, the Women Mystic School is available at womenmystics.org. And we've been having such a delightful time just each month on a different female mystic, having a masterclass with wonderful teachers and speakers, experts from around the world. And Evelyn just... Um, I just am tickled by her writing. Like you, you talked about before how you love words and you can tell Evelyn does too. She just has yeah. the way she turns a phrase. I mean, she kind of reminds me of the Inklings, you know, like a C.S. Lewis, a G.K. Chesterton, Belloc. Like they just had such a marvelous way of, of packaging ideas that, I don't know, you almost reach the end of a sentence and you're like, oh. Like you're like, I don't know if I should laugh or I have to think about that for a minute, but right, it's just right. delightful. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very excited to hear more about her, maybe, you know, hear a little of her writings, but you know, anybody who's in the moon mystic school will also have the quotes packet that we've put together. Um, mm -hmm. So people can at least read some excerpts from her, but if people want to learn Kathy more about you, your work, your poetry, where should they go? Uh, I have a website, KathleenStoutPoet.com. So I think that's probably I try to I try to keep it more or less up to date in terms of what I'm doing. 
Um, if you want to know more about Evelyn Underhill, the, the evelynunderhill.org is the, the website of the Evelyn Underhill Association. And we publish a yearly newsletter. Actually, the new one will be coming out probably in the next month or so. Um, and then our, and we have the annual quiet day that our leader next June is, we're very excited, will be the theologian Sarah Copley. Um, and, uh, and we've had wonderful people leading those retreats. So, um, and you can you can get on our mailing list and find out all about that on our on our website. Um, so I think that's and and I will um, I, I, there will be news on my website when my next book of poems comes out. I'll Marvelous. Be glad people know about that. For Riditas, we'll be keeping an eye out for that. Right. Well, beautiful. Well, this has been a delightful conversation. I so appreciate you taking time to share with us today some of your story and the world of poetry and the sacramental vision of the world. Um, is there anything, any um, word of wisdom or um, piece of insight that you would like to leave with our audience? Um, just that... I think what Underhill says, I think, is just so true that the experience of the great mystics doesn't differ that much from the experience available to all of us. She said it differs in degree and not in kind. So that that's a thing I think I've kept in mind all the way through the Women Mystics School. And I think mm. that she she puts that very well. Yes. Beautiful that it's accessible to all of us. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Kathy, and thank you all for listening in, and we look forward to seeing you all next time. Thank you for having me. spiritual wanderlust. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider leaving us a review or sharing it with others. It really does help us reach more kindred spirits who are hungry for the depths. To learn more about what we're up to, or to access our free resources for spiritual growth, visit us at www.spiritualwanderlust.org. May your days ahead be spacious, sprightly, and surprising. See you next time.